What exactly is the power of a Ring of Power? How did Sauron rise from a second-in-command for the great enemy to becoming the dominant shadow, the formidable Lord of the Rings? Today we wander, for the fourth time, into Tolkien's letter to Milton Waldman. If you enjoy the show, I would appreciate a rating and review from you. Our recent wandering of the Waldman letter has certainly deepened my love and appreciation for Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, as I hope it has for you. If so, each time you rate or review or share the show with a friend, it helps more people fall in love with the world and works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, let's wander. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Let's check the map. This is our fourth episode exploring the Waldman letter. Tolkien wrote this letter to a publisher in 1951, and it is now included as a preface to Tolkien's The Silmarillion. So far we've wandered through Tolkien's writing motivations, self-selected major themes, and his brief summary of the First Age of Middle-earth. Today we will explore Tolkien's summary for the Second Age of Middle-earth. Tolkien provided this summary, calling it, quote, the essential background to The Hobbit and its sequel. Note here that the sequel to The Hobbit did not yet have a name, as it would be a few more years before the first portion of The Lord of the Rings would be published as The Fellowship of the Ring. What is this essential background? Tolkien lays it out in three major themes of the Second Age. One, quote, the delaying of the elves that lingered in Middle-earth. Two, Quote, Sauron's growth to a new dark lord, master and god of men. And three, the Atlantis tale of Numenor and the fate of mortal men. Today we will cover the first theme and partly the second, while next episode we will explore the third. As we go forward, be on the lookout for those three major concepts that Tolkien pointed out earlier in the letter, and we analyzed a few episodes back. The ideas of the fall or rebelling against God and divinely designed nature, mortality, the escape of death or preserving life through art, and the machine, a.k.a. magic, or the making of external devices to make one's will more quickly effective, which leads to power. These ideas are riddled all throughout the Second Age. We'll see them pop up in various places and in various ways through this and the next episode. At the close of the First Age of Middle-earth, the Valar, or gods, quote, sternly counsel the elves to return into the West, the West here meaning the immortal land of Valinor. Many did, however, plenty did not, and remained in Middle-earth. The gears of the Second Age are a dark time in Middle-earth. Many elves indeed do leave to go to the West. The men who allied with the elves in the previous age were gifted the island of Numenor and also depart Middle-earth. Those elves who stay were fairly scattered in desolate places. For the more evil creatures, quote, the orcs, goblins, and other monsters bred by the first enemy are not wholly destroyed, and there is Sauron. 
The second age is where Sauron comes into his own, where he reigns supreme. Being the lieutenant of the great enemy in the first age, he now takes it upon himself to continue his master's quest for domination. Although this domination appears to have good intentions at the start, quote, very slowly, beginning with fair motives, the reorganizing and rehabilitation of the ruin of Middle-earth, allegedly neglected by the gods, he became a reincarnation of evil and a thing lusting for complete power. Sauron's looming and domineering presence is felt like a great shadow, ever-growing and, quote, spreading its sway more and more over men. Let's circle back to those elves who decided to stay in Middle-earth against the almost commandment from the gods. While the desire to linger in Middle-earth was not necessarily wrong, the motivating reason was that the elves wanted to remain in, quote, the mortal lands of their old heroic deeds. These were the lands that their people had beautified, protected, and sanctified with their blood for centuries. They were connected with the land and were not eager to leave it. Are you sensing the fall and mortality already? But as Tolkien says, quote, they wanted to have their cake without eating it. To clarify, quote, they wanted the peace and bliss and perfect memory of the West, meaning the undying land of Valinor, and yet to remain on the ordinary earth where their prestige as the highest people above wild elves, dwarves, and men was greater than at the bottom of the hierarchy of Valinor. Ah, there you have it. They want to be the top dogs, rulers of their domains. In their haughtiness, they refused to be humbled, but instead craved the glory of being the best. Yet they also longed for the peace and bliss of Valinor, and so, quote, they become obsessed with fading. This fading, if you remember from the previous episode, was a natural doom pronounced upon the elves, that they would fade while mortal men would wax stronger. Thus, Middle-earth was not the realm designed for them. They were immortal creatures in a fallen mortal world. This led them to a certain sadness. The elves dwelt in three major settlements. The havens in the north, where elves who grew weary of Middle-earth could set sail to Valinor. These were ruled by Gilgalad. Next was Imladris, what we know as Rivendell, a refuge near the Misty Mountains where Elrond preserved the memory of the elves. Lastly, south of Rivendell a ways, was Eregion, where, quote, Smithcraft reached its highest development, likely due to the settlement of the elves' greatest craftsmen and their unlikely friendship with the dwarves from the mines of Moria. It is in Eregion that Sauron is accepted, coming in a fair form. Having been rejected by Gil-galad and Elrond, Sauron found that the elves of Eregion were more than happy for his knowledge and lore in crafting. He came to them in a fair form and paid homage to the idea of, quote, healing of the desolate lands. But he soon discovered the weak point of the elves in Eregion, their desire to cultivate and preserve a beauty and bliss in the lands of Middle-earth that could match that of Valinor. Yet for Sauron, quote, it was really a veiled attack on the gods, an incitement to try and make a separate, independent paradise. Okay, remember the key themes, fall, mortality, machine, which leads to the desire for power. Here we have the elves who rebuff the counsel of the gods, 
remain in their pride in Middle-earth, seeking to create for themselves a paradise separate from the paradise of the gods, all with a natural, divinely mandated fading of their people. This is the perfect recipe for Sauron to waltz in, offer his knowledge, and via deception, make an attempt at subduing the elves to his will. Quote, at Eregion, great work began, and the elves came their nearest to falling to magic and machinery. With the aid of Sauron's lore, they made rings of power. What exactly is the power of a ring of power? A ring of power has several attributes. Quote, the chief power was the prevention or slowing of decay, change viewed as a regrettable thing. Thus, the ring's primary ability was to hinder the natural processes of decay. This is a profound philosophical concept, suggesting a desire to preserve the beauty of Middle-earth by resisting the inevitable passage of time, a theme that resonates throughout Tolkien's Legendarium. The power of the rings was, quote, the preservation of what is desired or loved. The desires and loves of the elves extend beyond mere material or temporal longings. Rather, they are intricately woven into the fabric of Middle-earth's intrinsic beauty, the flourishing realms, and the harmonious existence of its diverse inhabitants. The rings, in their essence, become guardians of an idyllic vision, preservers not only of physical artifacts, but, more significantly, of the profound emotional and spiritual connections that define the elves' profound bond with their world. This nuanced perspective enriches the narrative with a depth of sentiment portraying the elves as stewards, not just of their own desires, but as caretakers of the very soul of Middle-earth. Thus, when Elrond explains the three rings to the council at Rivendell, he says, quote, But they were not made as weapons of war or conquest. That is not their power. Those who made them did not desire strength or domination or hoarded wealth, but understanding, making, and healing, to preserve all things unstained. But this was not the only power of the rings. They also, quote, enhanced the natural powers of the possessor, as best exemplified through Gandalf, or maybe even better, Galadriel, as she resists evil through spiritual and psychological warfare against Sauron. More on that in a minute. The rings of power also possess the dual capacity to, quote, render invisible the material body and making things of the invisible world visible. Now, the mere skeptic would say, well, of course, being invisible is a convenient plot device when Bilbo needs to escape the clutches of Gollum after the riddle game. But don't be hasty. There is a deeper meaning at play here. This ability unveils a mesmerizing interplay between the seen and the unseen. Sauron's malevolent influence in the ring-making process imbues the rings with an unsettling inversion of the natural order, a cosmic flip where the visible is rendered unseen and the invisible is unveiled. This metaphysical duality mirrors the dark magic inherent in Sauron's dominion, showcasing a profound distortion of reality. It's a symbolic manifestation of the corrupting influence of power, turning the perceptible world into shadows while bringing forth the hidden and ethereal. The rings then become conduits of Sauron's subversion, casting a shadow over the very fabric of existence and challenging the fundamental boundaries between the material and the metaphysical in Tolkien's intricate tale. Now, of all the rings of power, three were made apart from the others, quote, 
supremely beautiful and powerful. The elves made these three, quote, almost solely of their own imagination. Though Tolkien would later write words said by Elrond that the hand of Sauron never touched or stained the three rings. These three, specifically, were directed to the preservation of beauty, and unlike the others, quote, did not confer invisibility. But, as can only be said in the voice of Kate Blanchett as Galadriel for the prologue of the greatest film trilogy of all time, quote, they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. We'll get to that one ring right after this break. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com, and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Quote, Secretly, in the subterranean fire, in his own black land, Sauron made one ring, the ruling ring that contained the powers of all the others. This ruling ring controlled the other rings of power. Quote, so that its wearer could see the thoughts of all those that used the lesser rings. By so seeing those thoughts, the wearer of the one ring could, quote, govern all that they did, and in the end could utterly enslave them. Let's pull over to the side of the road and examine this idea for a moment. The one ring offers a fascinating glimpse into Sauron's strategic cunning and the subtlety of his plan to dominate Middle-earth. The ability of the One Ring to tap into the thoughts of those who wielded the Lesser Rings reveals a form of psychological control that goes beyond conventional military might. Sauron, having witnessed the disastrous consequences of Morgoth's overt attempts at domination through force, adopts a more cunning and deceptive approach. By understanding the thoughts and desires of those who wielded the Lesser Rings, the Dark Lord sought to govern them not through brute strength, but by exploiting their innermost vulnerabilities. This method of psychological manipulation speaks to Sauron's mastery of the psychological realm, seeking to subtly bend the will of others to his own, without the need for open warfare. Galadriel alludes to this thought war when she reveals her ring to Frodo, after he has looked into the mirror in Lorien, when she says, quote, Do not think that only by singing amid the trees nor even the slender arrows of elven bows, is this land of Lothlorien, maintained and defended against the enemy. I perceive the Dark Lord and know his mind, and he gropes ever to see me and my thought, but still the door is closed. Furthermore, Sauron's focus on enslaving the elves, the craftsmen and wielders of the rings, 
underscores his keen understanding of the subtle artistry and aspirations that defined the elven race by corrupting the very essence of what the elves held dear, their desire for preservation, beauty, and connection to the world, Sauron aimed to control them from within, turning their noble intentions into instruments of their own undoing. This calculated approach reflects a deeper understanding of power dynamics, illustrating how Sauron recognized the potency of manipulating the hearts and minds of his adversaries a tactic that stands in stark contrast to Morgoth's more overt and brute force methods in the first age of Middle-earth. But Sauron's plan backfired in the most miraculous way. Quote, the moment he assumed the One, the elves were aware of it, and of his secret purpose, and were afraid. In response, they hid the Three Rings, and the others they attempted to destroy. Later, Galadriel would comment to Frodo that the elves, quote, will cast all away rather than submit to Sauron, for they know him now. Deception and subterfuge having failed him, Sauron returns to tried and true tactics. He invades Eregion with an overwhelming force of orcs. Then, quote, Sauron seized many rings of power. Note that a number is not specified by Tolkien at this point. These he gave for their ultimate corruption and enslavement to those who would accept them out of ambition or greed. It's important to remember that the rings of power were crafted by the elves under Sauron's influence, but it was Sauron who gave the seven to the dwarves and the nine to mortal men, as outlined in the ring verse that Tolkien provides here in the letter, quote, three rings for elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne, in the land of Mordor, where shadows lie. Tolkien then takes a moment to wander the unique relationship between the One Ring and Sauron, particularly his power. To create the One Ring, he was compelled to, quote, let a great part of his own inherent power pass into the One Ring. Hence why Gandalf warns Frodo that the Ring and the Dark Lord are one, ever connected. In wearing the One Ring, Sauron's power was enhanced, but the One Ring had two, quote, essential weaknesses. First, if another being, equal in power to Sauron, claimed possession of the Ring, they could thereby challenge Sauron and become master over him and usurp him. Second, quote, if the One Ring was actually unmade, annihilated, then its power would be dissolved. Sauron's own being would be diminished to vanishing point, and he would be reduced to a shadow a mere memory of malicious will. In his pride, Sauron did not account for these weaknesses. He was secure inside his land of Mordor. The ring was on his finger. And if by some impossible chance he ever lost possession of it, the overwhelming lust of its power would be enough for the ring to be out of harm's way until he could reclaim it. Quote, so he thought. We leave Sauron brooding in his dark land as his, quote, evil theocracy grows, and the elves are beaten back to their isolated refuges. In the first War of the Rings, Sauron nearly becomes fully dominant in Middle-earth, only with the intervention of the men of Numenor and the dwarves of Moria are the elves able to repel Sauron and send him back to Mordor. But we'll explore the men of Numenor next time. Thank you for wandering Middle-earth with me, 
today. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Follow me on Facebook or Instagram at More of the Rings Podcast. For feedback on the show, please email me using the link in the show notes. Until next Thursday, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Raise your hand if this has happened to you today. You're in the middle of work. You're knocking things off the to-do list, getting stuff done. And your kid asks you to play. Do you drop everything? Do you ask them to wait a minute? What do you do? If you're like me, you don't always say yes right away. The kid moves on, you get busy, and you forget to circle back around and play. An opportunity to make a memory has been lost, and the dad guilt settles in. Not so anymore. I've developed a simple game that will enable you to take those small moments and have fun. It's called Dad's Adventure Dice Digital Edition. My five-year-old daughter asks me nearly every day, can we do Dad Adventure Dice? What follows are some quick rolls of the dice that lead to a fun activity with an intriguing twist. Within 5 or 10 minutes, we've had a lot of fun, shared a lot of laughter, and made a memory together. Download your own Dad's Adventure Dice today. Visit store.adventures.dad to download yours. That's store.adventure.dad to download Dad's Adventure Dice.